according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought, and brought great joy to all the brothers. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order, uh, and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test and placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But, believe, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it's written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. But we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him. For he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. And then one more verse. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we long for you to teach us, for your words to break into our minds and our hearts, and for your spirit to teach and apply your love and your glory, your grace and truth, and reshape us. Lord, we long for these things because we know that's how you mature us and form us and deepen our joy as well. And so we pray that you would do that even through my words today, that you would be uh, using this time for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm curious, um, do any of you know what the Bible says about Easy Cheese? Does everyone know what Easy Cheese is? You know, the canister with the, it's amazing. Thank you, Aaron. I agree. It's the canister with the little spray nozzle on the end, and you can squirt it out on crackers and stuff. Um, is there a Christian way to diet? Uh, what does the Bible tell us about proper Lego building techniques? You guys know? You know, Justice? I don't know. 
These and a hundred other questions uh, feel strange to us, and we're actually not certain how to answer these kinds of things. The problem is not with us or even those questions, but the approach to the Bible that's assumed there. Uh, the approach is, uh, is true, and it says that uh, the Bible, uh, the truth of the Bible applies to everything, and so the Bible must have answers for everything. That's, that's largely true. Uh, the Bible does touch every part of our life and existence. But that doesn't mean it has specific rules or particular ways we should do each thing in our life. Uh, in fact, when I ask questions like, should a Christian go for the full synthetic oil change or just the old conventional kind, uh, you begin to feel how absurd that is, especially when you try and answer that. Well, you know, when the Lord provided oil for so-and-so, it was all, and it just goes bad really quickly, doesn't it? So why is that? What's happening? Well, the reality is that uh, the scriptures do have all sorts of things to say about our possessions, and the way we think about the things we own and the kinds of privileges in life we feel entitled to and the way we treat our, our possessions and stewardship and all of the things that play in our heart when we make those decisions. So it does touch on oil changes and the way we think about money. And there's a whole side of this topic that I'm not going to deal with today, and that is that there's lots of places in Scripture that do directly speak to us, that speak exactly to the things we're doing and thinking and feeling, and uh, those are some of the things we talk about every week. Things like uh, being sober-minded, sexual purity, loving our enemies, forgiveness, humility. Those are the hard parts, in many ways, uh, of the Christian life. I know what it says, but it's hard for me to get there. The scriptures do speak to us directly in a number of all topics, and I, I don't want to uh, veer from those, but uh, those topics reach into our deepest levels of our existence and color everything, but they don't do it by giving us tips and information to apply to our lives. The Bible is not like a topical cream that you apply to your arm to get rid of that nasty rash or fungus, and it just works its magic on your life. That's not how the Bible works. You don't apply it. Uh, so I guess the question I'm asking this morning is, how does the Bible teach us to live? How do we come to be a changed person and actually make decisions about our life through knowing God in the scriptures. So we're going to tackle this in four moves. First, we are called to form wise judgments, to form wise judgments. Second, uh, we are called to do this by taking our place in the story, taking our place. Third, we are called to study the Spirit's work on the stage around us. So the Spirit's work on the stage, all because of the freedom we have in God's grace. So first, we're called to form wise judgments. Um, what most of us want uh, is some way of exactly predicting what, what would be the best path in life. What's the job you should take? Who's the girl you should date? What college should you go to? What class? We would like to have God give us these kind of detailed answers. And of course, and it's not new. In fact, it's a really old desire. Uh, and uh, it's a really old idea, too. And in the Bible, it's called divining. If you've ever seen that word divination or divining, uh, the idea is that you come to God with some particular question. Should I go to war? Should I buy this field? Should we have another child? Should I marry this person? And he gives you some sort of sign to make sure that you're going in the right way. In fact, we have uh, records of like interpretive manuals for uh, Greek uh, pagan priests and how they do this. It's a very pagan idea. 
And you'd come and you'd cut open the animal, and the priest would look at, you know, various organs and the way they're arranged and the fat on the kidney lobe, and that was supposed to be interpreted as a blessing or a curse, and you should do this thing or you should not do it. And the whole idea was that uh, we can come to God and he can tell us exactly what to do so that we are never outside of his blessing. But I want you to know that that whole way of approaching God and decision-making is actually condemned in the Bible. There's a reason why the Lord uh, does not give us those kinds of answers. And yet, for some reason, if you go and spend time in any Christian bookstore, uh, you'll notice that they are swollen with books like this, that try to answer these kinds of questions, that try and tell you how to find God's will, how to find the blessed path, uh, all aimed at making sure you don't mess up and fall out of God's will. I don't know if you've ever heard this. I've had a Christian tell me once, um, don't make the wrong choice because then God won't be able to help you. You'll be stuck. Well, that's the exact opposite of what the scriptures actually say. We want to hear these things because we want to avoid mistakes and any uncertainty. And so Christians often take good ideas about how to live faithfully and start turning them into laws. In fact, one of my favorite titles in the Christian book world is... Um, what would Jesus eat? The ultimate program for eating well, feeling great, and living longer. Uh, I don't mean to mock it entirely, just a little bit. Um, <laughs> because it actually makes perfect sense that we would want to know that kind of a thing. Right? Uh, because what we're really called to is forming wise judgments, and that is terrifying. It's terrifying, and it takes a lot of work to actually become someone who's mature enough to make a reasoned, godly decision, to take on the risk that that decision involves, to trust the Lord that he will be with us even if we do make a dumb decision. And that's exactly where we find the church in Acts 15. There's this controversy that arises, and I don't know if you notice, it says, no small dissension, much debate, much problem. This is a big deal. This is the hot topic of the day. In fact, uh, if any, every New Testament book is touched by this question, can someone who is not a Jew be saved and be part of God's people without becoming a Jew? And it seems a little foreign to us, so I just want to take one second and talk about why that's a big deal uh, and why it was so disorienting for the early church. You have to remember that up until then, uh, God actually was eager to reach all the nations, but if you were to come into uh, God's kindness, into his fellowship, the way you had to do that was by becoming a Jew. So all your males would have to take on the sign of being a Jew, being circumcised, and your whole family would have to start observing all of the laws, the dietary laws, the rituals, even in many ways, cases actually moving to the land. And so by the time you get to the New Testament, these Christians say, you know, we know Jesus is the true Messiah. And what that means for us is that in him, all of God's promises to Israel are fulfilled. But we don't know what to do with the people who aren't Israel. Can they just come in and not become part of Israel? Or are they actually God's people, even though they're not Jews? And, and does that mean that if they are God's people, they don't have to become Jews? Does that mean that it doesn't matter about being a Jew? Just ditch everything? So you can get some sense of why uh, most of the church was upset about these kinds of questions. It was disorienting for them. But we also have a critical moment in the life of the church that was not scripted. You need to remember that the overwhelming majority of the New Testament was not written by this point. Maybe Galatians. Maybe Mark. 
Most of the New Testament was not written by this point. And so what are the scriptures that these brothers are studying? It's the Old Testament. And I'll just be frank with you, the Old Testament is not very direct about this issue. Old Testament has all sorts of things to say about all of the nations coming in, but it doesn't say whether or not they should be circumcised. So what do they do? The fact is, is that they had the script for what God had done previously, but now they're beyond the script. The Old Testament does not answer the question directly. So what do they have to do? They have to form a wise judgment. That is to say, they have to make a judgment call. Look at uh, verses 6 and 7. So this is what they do. They gather together to consider the question, and they read in communities of church. Uh, let me see here. The apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter, and after there had been much debate, right? This is a, like a virtue in Presbyterianism. After there had been much debate, right? These are good Presbyterians. Peter stands up and starts talking. But after everything's been heard, Peter, Paul, Barnabas, James finally stands up, and in verse 19 says, Therefore, my judgment, that is to say, what I think we should do, I'm going to take a stab at this. My judgment is that we shouldn't trouble those Gentiles who turn to God. They make a judgment. They make a decision about what the Lord would have them do. And in the letter they send to the churches, you don't have it in your bulletin, it says, it seemed good to us having come to one accord. Or later on, for it seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit to lay on you no greater burden. That means that they made a decision that they weren't entirely sure about. Right? They made a judgment call that did not, uh, that was not free from uncertainty. Uh, they made a call together, led by the Holy Spirit, in agreement with the Word of God. They formed a wise judgment. Well, what's this like for us? Because we do have the New Testament now. Well, uh, the fact is, is that uh, the New Testament leaves off part of the story. We're somewhere in between uh, what happens in the end of Acts 28 and the end of Revelation 22. In the meantime, there's a whole lot that's not been written that we are beyond the script in. So here's a little example uh, of what this is like and what we're called to. Uh, I, uh, this quote was sent to me from a, a new attender, Lyle. This is an uh, N.T. Wright analogy. He says this, Suppose there exists a Shakespeare play whose fifth act had been lost. Uh, the first four acts provide such a wealth of characterization, uh, such a crescendo of excitement within the plot that it's agreed that the play ought to be staged. You have all this first, first four, and you want to have the fifth. Well, so what do you do about the fifth act? Well, it wouldn't be right uh, to, excuse me, it wouldn't be right to actually write a fifth act. That would freeze the whole play, and it would force people to say it's Shakespeare's when it's actually not his work at all. Better to give the key roles to highly trained, sensitive, and experienced Shakespearean actors who would immerse themselves in the first four acts in the language and culture of Shakespeare in his time and who would then be told to improvise a fifth act for themselves. Consider the result. The first four acts existing as they did would be the undoubted authority for the task in hand. That is, anyone could object to the new improv, saying that this or that character was now acting inconsistently. That's not how they were before. Or that this theme from earlier had not reached its proper resolution. That is to say that this authority of the first four acts is not that the actors repeat the earlier parts over and over, but that the authority 
is one of an unfinished drama which contains its own forward movement, its own impetus, which demanded to be concluded in the proper manner, but which required of the actors a responsible entering into the story as it stood. In order to first understand how the threads could be appropriately drawn together and then put that understanding into effect by speaking and acting with both innovation and consistency. Briefly put, we are in that fifth act. We are in a place where we are actually called to enter into that story and improvise. We, most of our life is not scripted, but we are called to act faithfully, to improvise within the story that God has already begun. And just so you know, good improv, especially if you're one of these actors stepping into the story, uh, always takes into account the story so far, but also everyone else on the stage. Bad improv, I don't know if you've ever been to see improv done, but bad improv is usually when someone stands up and they want to be so creative and so original that they actually derail the story. Right? It goes from being a romantic comedy about a guy and a girl and some other guy who comes and annoys them to now being uh, this disastrous fight you know, in a gymnastics class. And what happened to our story? Uh, that's bad improv, but good improv develops the story from within and deepens the characters in new ways. It notices what the other actors and actresses are doing and folds that into the story. It always minds the story and the stage. And it's so much the same for us. As we improvise with Scripture, we study the story of God's deeds in the Bible and Jesus, and we study and notice what's happening around us and fold it into the story. And those are our next two points, story and stage. So second point is to take our place in the story. And just to extend this improv analogy, this will kind of be our picture. We have to know the story very well in order to take our place in it. And part of what this means, just, just as an aside, is that we need to know the flow of Scripture. We need to know what the Lord does, what motivates Him, how He acts throughout the pages. But this is exactly what James does. Look at verses 13 through 17 with me. And after speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I'll return, I'll rebuild the tent of David that has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. With this, the words of the prophets agree. James is worried, first of all, about what makes sense according to Scripture. Does this line up with the story that's happened this far? So I just want to take a minute and ask, what is that story? What is the story? The story is that the God who is free to do whatever he wants, he's unbound in his abundant and free love decided to make an entire world that was full of good things, that was actually full of his own presence because he loved it. And he put us in it. And he put Adam and Eve in it. And yet, through the work of Satan, Adam, the head of humanity, did not trust God, but actually rebelled against him. And so because of Adam, all of us have been born into a rebellion. And we've inherited all of the alienation that Adam got for us. Alienation from God, alienation from each other, alienation from the world, even alienation from ourselves. And yet God was so kind 
that he would not let that go on. And so he continued to pursue and follow after everyone who came after Adam and, in fact, chose a people so that he could save all nations through them. He chose Israel, in fact, to be this refuge, and he rescues them from slavery so that the whole world would know that this is a God who frees from the slavery of sin. And their whole job as a nation was to bring in all the rest of mankind. And yet what they did, actually, is they forgot. And they did what was right in their own eyes. And they went back to being enslaved to themselves and to their own sins. And so eventually the Lord had to discipline them. They not only were miserable because they were disciplined, but they also, because they walked away from the Lord, they failed their mission. And the nations were not brought in. And yet, in this miserable place, God sends this promise of Amos 9, that God himself is actually coming back. That the Lord himself is actually eager to rebuild and restore them, and that he will send a Davidite, a true king, to come and rebuild and welcome in all the nations. And God has done exactly that. In fact, he has become that Davidite. He was born, he took on flesh, so that in his body being crucified, our death would die. He took on our alienation upon himself as he was alienated from the Father. And so death died when Jesus died. But in his resurrection, God began the renewal of all of the ruined world, all of the ruined peoples. God was making all things new, and he started with Jesus and actually with everyone who's connected to Jesus. And so ever since then, and really since the beginning of the world, God has been grabbing people from the world, bringing them in, and connecting them to this new life that he's begun in Jesus. And so he's been saving people to create a counterculture, a counter-nation, really a new humanity. And it's through that new humanity that he is actually establishing a whole different kingdom, a kingdom that is colored by grace and by truth, by justice and by mercy. And it's actually something he's accomplishing through his people, by his spirit in Jesus. That is the story that we belong to. That's the story of the world. And it's actually the same story that James and the apostles were in. We're in the same play. So James says, listen, uh, what's happening among us is not something we've seen before, but it makes sense. This is exactly what God has been doing. This fits. And so he looks at the story up until that time and says, you know, it is time for God to bring in the Gentiles. Because Jesus is king of all humanity. And so he says, we can't stand in the way of what God's doing. We have to, what, join in. So that is to say they're improvising in accordance with Scripture. Their improvisation is not telling a new story. It's telling the next chapter in the same story. So, so we have to ask ourselves this morning, um, whose story are we living? Whose story are you living I think this is where most of us struggle. Do we understand where God is going and what he's doing in the world? I think we struggle because we have a very different picture in mind of the point of our life. Uh, most of us imagine a different kind of story about our lives, a story of success, a story of our um, hard work and, and hard-earned wisdom paying off in the end. You know, 
just a wise guy, made a lot of good decisions, and, and the Lord blessed me. In fact, most of us are born imagining the story to be ours, and we try and find ways to fit God into it. We invite God into certain portions of our life, certain compartments, and yet really, predominantly, we think it's our story. We're the drivers. What that means is that so long as we have not entered into God's story, but we are trying to get him into ours, we will be outside looking in on the work he's doing in the world. I'll tell you, as long as you are trying to fit God into your life, finding a place for him, the Bible is going to be a strange document for you. It will. It's going to be weird. But, but if you begin to give yourself over to his work, to his people, to his story, what he is doing in the world with you, then the Bible becomes your story, becomes your whole heritage. And so when we begin to understand the whole arc and narrative of the big picture of Scripture, we can begin to see our role in that story. So now, my job, my house, my family, my skills, my passions, all of those things are not things that I'm trying to keep and avoid God. Now they become meaningful parts in God's work and story. And so when I show up to work, I'm not just paying the bills. No, I'm actually playing my role in God's good care of the world. You know, when our refinery guys go out and they produce good product and they're kind and they protect each other and they show the kindness of Christ and they develop real friendships, they're not simply just being Christians. That's true too. What they're actually doing is they're doing uh, their work as part of God's kind administration in the world. When our electricians, when our school teachers, when our moms do things in light of who Christ is, they are blessing the society, and in fact, they are actually participating with God's kindness in the world. And if you've ever lived in a country where Christians have not marked the society, you will know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, I'll just tell you, I've seen all sorts of uh, heart-wrenching corruption, uh, instability, uh, shoddy work every time I'm in countries that have not had the gospel for a long time. Uh, that's not a thing about education. It has nothing to do with where you live or how hot it is. It has everything to do with Christians making their mark on the world. And that is why holiness matters. That's what holiness is about. Holiness is actually about being made into a new person so that you actually can participate better, be more useful in God's kind administration of the world, which is exactly what Romans 12 uh, tells us. So God is accomplishing the renewal of all things, and his chosen tool is his people. That's the story you're in. But to do that actually takes a tremendous amount of careful wisdom. You have to know what's actually needed, and that's our third point. We must study the Spirit's work on the stage. This is more of the improv analogy. In order to faithfully carry out God's story, we have to stop and notice what's going on around us. I don't know if you notice this in Acts 15. Uh, about half of the passage is spent relating what God had been doing. Right? Uh, verse 7, Peter tells everyone uh, what God has been doing around him, saving the Gentiles. And if, if you know Peter's story in, in the book of Acts, this is not something he was looking for. This is something that confronted him, that he had to face and deal with. Verse 12, Paul and Barnabas tell everyone the wonderful things God had been doing through them for the Gentiles. Even James 
talks about all of this scripture to make sense of what? To make sense of the things of other people's experiences. So you can make sense of what's happening. So part of what I see here is an awareness and a respect for what the Lord is doing around them. A willingness to stop and observe and notice and value other people's experiences as important indicators of what the Lord's doing. So just to extend the improv image one more time, loyalty to the story can't squash our sensitivity to the stage. If everything else on stage is going one direction, you can't just keep marching along. You have to engage with that and fold it back into the story. So we have to ask, how do you do this? Well, one of the things you do is it means you have to work hard studying and really actually spend the time necessary to understand the people around you to understand the material you're working with, to understand the world that you're working in. That means that if you're a businessman, you take time to actually study and know the people you work with and people who work for you. That means that if you're producing products and manufacturing things, it's your job to actually excel at your craft and to know the material so well in service to the Lord and his story. But frankly, this is hard work. And we're often uh, tempted to be lazy and so uh, it's easy to find, um, it, it's, it's something we want the Bible to do, is to excuse us from the hard work of learning a craft, learning a trade, learning people. But that's exactly what we're called to do, informing wise judgments. And I, I, think, I think actually at Christ Church, we're pretty good at this in a cultural sense. We know that we can't come and hammer the Bible down people's throats. In fact, we know that we have to be in their life in the context of what's going on if the, Bible, if the gospel is going to have any kind of meaningful interaction in life. The gospel is meaningful when it answers the questions we're asking. So we have to spend time there. But I think I just want to encourage us as well as we think about who we are as a body and what we're doing, especially as we want to see Bellingham touched by the gospel and reach Birchwood neighborhood. We cannot just show up and begin dispensing uh, all of our ideas and all the scriptures, we must, we must begin by actually spending time getting to know our actual neighbors. That means eating with them. That means asking about their lives, hearing their stories. And I mean that both for our neighbors here and in Birchwood, but also for the neighbors who actually live right next to you. Spending time with them is crucial if you would understand how the Spirit has already been at work in their life. And he has because they know a Christian. It's you. So we can do all this with courage because actually of the freedom we have in grace. My big goal with this uh, sermon is just to say, I want us to mature in knowing the scriptures and uh, knowing our neighbors so we can make more gospel-driven judgment calls. Things that actually embrace God's heart in the world and, and, uh, and exude his kindness. But more than that, I want us to be free from thinking that God is waiting, ready to pounce if we hit a wrong note. In fact, what he wants us to do is actually to embrace our role in his kingdom with all of the risk involved precisely because he's so gracious. In fact, it's his delight for us to take up the role we have because we are so confident that he will be kind to us when we screw up. And that is his 
heart for us as a people that we would take on the mantle and say, all right, I'm in and I'm going to screw up, but you are gracious. And that's the good news anyways. He is not waiting to pounce. He is actually poised, poised to use, to bless your efforts, to bless your faltering prayers, to use your reading, to use your engagement with people, however messy, however imperfect they might be. And that means you are free to try stuff. You're free to try things for the first time because there's a massive safety net in God's grace and in God's people. But there's actually more than that. We are free to try because it's actually God's story in the first place. He is the main actor. He's the main actor. And so our confidence in trying things is not in ourselves. It's that God is alive. And he's actually doing things. And he is the one who's going to bring it about. And so we get to pray and just step out and risk, asking that the Lord would act. And this is exactly what Psalm 37 says. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. So what does that actually mean for us? It means each of us has a role to play in God's kingdom. It's not that you get to choose whether or not you have a role. You do have a role. And if you're not steeping yourself in the scriptures, if you're not uh, steeping yourself with God's people and getting to know the people around you, you'll be stunted in your role. You'll be stunted. But if we are walking with the Lord, steeped in his word and with each other, the spirit will lead us into new exciting territory. You will not be bored. I have not been bored for years, okay? <laughs> he will act. I mean, he will act. And the beautiful thing, this is the great privilege of the Christian life, is that you get to be on the front row of God himself doing things in the world. And the great privilege is that he uses us. He uses your work, your silly words, all of your attempts to actually bring about the restoration of all things, to rescue people who have been alienated. That is the great privilege and honor of being a Christian, is that I get to give myself to the Lord and his work. And oh my goodness, he actually likes to use me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you're so kind to us. And it's such good news to know that we belong to a great story, a story much greater than ourselves. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would give us greater longing to see your glory, to, be a, uh, to play our part in this story, this grand uh, narrative of your kindness. And so, Lord, I pray for those uh, who... Uh, maybe want to take up the role but are afraid that you would give them a serious unrest and discontentment with um, just the shallowness of our lives. And I pray that you would draw us into a fiery longing to be in, uh, in your work, to be seeing you accomplishing things even through us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us greater joy and confidence and that you would speak to us powerfully in your scriptures. Shape us into a people who know and exude your kindness in this world, we pray in Jesus' name.